This is episode 17 of Advocacy in Court. Our topic is experts and their evidence. Many jurisdictions these last 20 to 30 years have adopted expert witness guidelines. Even if your court doesn't have them, their simple, straightforward contents are useful to every advocate who is preparing and then taking evidence from an expert in court. The guidelines always refer to the following four fundamentals. First, that an expert witness owes their first and overriding duty to the court, not to the party that is calling them. This is for the simple reason that if the fact finder, be it jury or judge, can't trust the independence of the expert, then there is little reason for that person to be in the courtroom. Moving from that overriding duty, it is essential that an expert always share with their audience not only all the data that they received before they thought about the problem, but also that they identify the data that they would like to have had, but for whatever reason did not get. Thereafter, an expert should always share the methods that they've used to analyse the data put before them. The methodology does not have to be the most expensive and state-of-the-art. It merely has to be a methodology that is fit for purpose, that is well-tried, that's reliable, and that it's accepted by colleagues in the area. And finally, the expert must state their outcome, along with any qualifications on that outcome. It's a good idea in those jurisdictions where there are expert witness guidelines published by the court that the expert, when making an affidavit to accompany their expert report, sets out explicitly in that affidavit that they are aware of the expert witness guidelines and that they have followed them. It's a good idea for you or a lawyer who is making arrangements with an expert for you, that they provide the expert with the expert witness guidelines before the expert witness starts work. Before the witness starts work, either you or another lawyer working with you must settle with the expert the issues that they are to address in their report. It's best if this is done by a chat or chats between the expert and the lawyers so that the lawyer sets out the issues which are the right issues from the expert's point of view. Once that is agreed, the instructions can be given in written form. The rules require that experts write reports that those reports are filed with the court before the hearing and that those reports are served on all other parties some time before the hearing so that a rebuttal report may be prepared 
or if there's going to be no report, that the other side has an opportunity to prepare for its cross-examination of the expert's opinions. Since it follows that the important work of your expert report may be done prior to any court hearing, and indeed one would hope that it was something that led to the case being settled without a hearing, or if there is a hearing, a much shortened one, the report needs to be persuasive. In order to help it to be so, here are some tips. The conclusions and opinions should be stated at both the start and the end of the report. This is so that the users of the report are told at the outset where they're going. Further assistance to the readers of the report is provided by having headings throughout the report, which are then put into a table of contents format, such that the reader of the table of contents is introduced to what they will be dealing with as they go through the report. There ought to be a glossary of terms, the glossary being written in such a way that lay people can easily enough understand the technical terms that are contained within it. The layout of the expert report should include a margin on the right-hand side of about some five centimetres, sufficient to allow any users of the report, such as yourself, the other side, another expert, jurors or a trial judge, to write notes and queries right next to the material which they need to think about. Wherever possible, illustrations and diagrams should be included and they should be placed within the text, not as something that's added at the end of the report. Paragraph numbering seems to be a very small matter, but it can be quite important. Use only whole numbers, 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. And I suggest that it's often useful to restart these at the start of each major topic. The reason for this is that when in court, advocates often have to refer the expert who's in the witness box to a specific part of the report. And it's very helpful if the expert can say, please go to paragraph 3, paragraph 10, under the heading such and such, the sentence begins as. The reason why this is very helpful is is that when various users of the report um, print it out on different printers, there can be different pagination that occurs. Always ensure that the footer to the report includes a version number and date. This is so as to ensure that when at a hearing, everybody is referring to exactly the same document when questions are being asked about it. Finally, go through with your expert their curriculum vitae so that it only includes those items that are relevant to the report that you've commissioned them to write. All other extraneous material should be deleted. Bear in mind that just as you are stressed about your performance in a courtroom, so an expert witness 
is likewise stressed about how he or she will perform in the courtroom. You can allay part of that stress by doing them the courtesy of having a conference with them to discuss their report and how they're going to give evidence prior to the hearing date. It is not a good look or feel for an expert to be told that they'll meet the advocate for the first time outside the courtroom on the day of the hearing. It tells them, really quite strongly, that they don't matter. If you're going to go to the trouble and your client's expense of commissioning an expert, then the least you can do is make sure that you are on top of all the material within the expert's report and that you've done something to develop a rapport with that expert, not only to work as a team when eliciting their evidence in chief, but also to ensure that they're properly prepared for any cross-examination from your opponent. As I mentioned in the previous episode dealing with re-examination, you must rehearse with your expert the need for them to use the phrase during cross-examination, would you like me to explain, so that you will know what point or points to take up in your re-examination of your expert. It is becoming more common for courts to require opposing experts to have a private meeting, that is one at which there are no lawyers, and at that private meeting they're instructed by the court to prepare a memorandum as to what they agree on and as to what they don't agree on, and so far as they can, the reasons for that disagreement. Where the various experts engage in this meeting properly, then the outcome is likely to be a considerable saving in court time. Experts giving their evidence by remote audio-visual link is a well-established practice that became much more common during the pandemic in 2020-2021. So remind the expert that they should have all their notes, working papers, reports and references available with them in their office or from whatever site they are giving their evidence, that they should have some water to sip and be in a quiet place. Where experts are expected to come to court to give their evidence, don't forget that you may always have a situation where it's proper to ask that they be interposed, that is, that their evidence is taken out of turn. When it comes to your cross-examination of an opponent's expert, make sure that you're properly prepared to do this. Do you need the help of an instructing expert, that is, an expert in the same field as the expert that you're calling, but this instructing evidence will not be a person who will go into the witness box themselves? In your cross-examination... What can you gain by being nice? Are there some concessions that will be easily given? Thereafter, are you attacking their suitability to be an expert in this particular case? Or the adequacy of their background or training? Or are you looking at the problems with their data set? Or any exaggeration in their statement of conclusions? And so, with these remarks about experts and their evidence, this series about advocacy in court is complete.
for the time being. As I mentioned in the first episode, there is a short book, and an inexpensive one, by the very same name, that you can get on Amazon Kindle. Please do email me if you have comments, or you have materials that I might use in some follow-up episodes. Thank you for joining me. Good luck, and bye for now.